0: In the last episode, we took you through a snapshot of what drug discovery looks like in the field of psychedelics. It is key to remember that just because there are existing agents that are naturally available or show current clinical benefit, it should not deter the scientists from creating newer molecules. In fact, let's take an example of MDMA. Alexander Shulgin is hailed as a great chemist by many in the psychedelic area because he synthesized MDMA. While mescaline was the inspiration for MDMA, that inspiration did not make MDMA any less of a molecule. In fact, his reimagining of the synthesis of MDMA in the 1960s is what triggered the exploration of the chemical in couples therapy. Where we have an issue, and the issue that the regulators care about, is that whenever new molecules are synthesized, careful clinical studies must be done to inform safety and efficacy before being applied in clinical practice. The privilege that traditional mushrooms, or psilocybin, or DMT have, will not be true of every molecule that follows. In fact, even modifying the side chain and adding a different element to create a different molecule, or a heavier molecule, like what psilocybin is doing with deuterated tryptamine, is an example of that carefully regulated clinical development. With all of that in mind, Let's now figure out how investment works in this area. And more importantly, one is still left with the subjective patient reported endpoints in psychology and neuropsychiatry. It's time to see how the latest technological advances are aiding existing psychotherapy practices and seek to help clinical outcomes. We have examples to explore with you. This is Psychederics, a Scraps original podcast exploring the therapeutic use of psychedelics. An enthralling story of an improbable drug class banished into exile, yet comes back soaring like a phoenix from the ashes to save mankind's affliction with mental health disorders.
1: Before we go any further, it is useful to go back to the definition of psychedelic that we built at the beginning of this journey in episode 1. Having listened to every episode so far, we want you to judge if we have answered these questions and delivered on the framework that we set for ourselves. In episode 1, we reframe the definition of psychedelic to the following. Psychedelic refers to a group of natural plant-based or synthesized substances that, at any given dose, as known for other medicinal products, modify basic neurological functions to enhance the user's sense of perception. I'm sure we are not going to argue about the origins of psychedelics now. Through examples in history and pharmacology, we have provided you with examples of how dose of compounds can impact the experience it is this very property that is being tweaked with newer molecules just because ketamine was an approved intravenous anesthetic it did not stop Johnson and Johnson to make an inhaled version of ketamine for psychedelic use this inhaled ketamine or sublingual ketamine as some of the newer versions are leads to a faster absorption so dose and delivery is everything as it governs the outcome. In a recreational setting, one must know the source, purity, and safety information before using. While people may use it without such information, it is a game of blind trust and imagination that is at play. But when we move from recreational use, as it was done in the counterculture period, to a more regulated development and clinical application, care must be taken and documentation of every effect of a given dose and response must be studied. This is exactly what companies like Sybin are doing with their modified tryptamines, or in the case of Bright Minds Bio, where selective molecules or ligands for serotonin receptors are being studied. Now let's explore the next section of the definition. We said that psychedelic molecules at any given dose can modify basic neurological function to enhance the user's sense of perception. Have we provided evidence to this? Are
0: you sure? We think we have. We have shown through evidence in literature and in experience, starting from episode 5 onwards, that psychedelic molecules do not produce hallucinations, and the term hallucination is a misnomer. In fact, They alter the basic physiology of the brain to the extent that enhanced connectivity on the brain's cortical surface enables these visions and sensory changes. But one still cannot entirely identify or understand how a fundamental reset of the thinking of any given person happens. But we see evidence of this in studies with MDMA for PTSD and alcohol addiction, and with psilocybin for major depressive disorder. And we also added to the definition by stating that for a typical psychedelic molecule, psychotherapy and follow-up is as integral to its use as the drug itself. The drug provides a shortcut to the psychologist to unlock the patient's mind, to work with the patient to rebuild it back up during the integration session. So, in a way, modifying the basic neurological functions during the drug therapy and beyond is what aids the integration sessions with the psychologist. We have now determined that the delivery of a psychedelic drug through a healthcare system needs regulated availability, safety demonstrated via clinical trials, a healthcare system that will be adept at handling both drug and psychotherapy. The latter is fundamentally different to how the healthcare system currently operates. Therein lies the challenge. Clinical trial centers show that they can do it well But the question is, can it be scaled up? And what's in it for investors and healthcare providers? Why should someone invest and what benefit does it provide?
1: We would be preaching to the choir if we mention the following figure. It is crucial to understand that the global burden of mental health disorders by the year 2030 will be an estimated $6 trillion. This was published in an editorial in Lancet, a reputed scientific journal. CDC or Center for Disease Control estimates that approximately 40% of adult population in the US has some form of mental health disorder or substance abuse. While such numbers are not entirely available for UK and Europe, it did motivate an investor in this space to leave her legal career and pursue a career in venture capital. If you have listened to our credits for the show, you would have heard that we owe a deep sense of gratitude to Clara Bertenshaw, a partner and co-founder of Neokuma Ventures. Clara's Neokuma Ventures was the first European fund dedicated to psychedelics. Clara was studying law at Oxford when she saw the incredible work performed by the Beckley Foundation and Amanda Fielding in funding clinical trials using philanthropic money. Although we did not get into the details of how Clara heard and experienced the manner in which Beckley Foundation started this work, it is highly likely that it was through case studies and cross-fertilization of ideas that occurs in a fertile, intellectual institution where cross-pollination between science, business and law schools are common. Here is Clara.
2: So in terms of what drew me to the psychedelic space, I came across Psychedelics 15 years ago, Oxford University, um, where I first heard about the Berkeley Foundation, which was a not-for-profit that um, was led by Amanda Fielding and was really sponsoring the early clinical trials um, and gathering together the scientists, the clinicians, and also... um, Sponsoring the next wave of psychedelic scientists through universities like Imperial, and I really started reading into it, and I found the science and the effect on the human brain just fascinating. Um, so I always, since then, had been reading the clinical trial um, results, the reports, and tracking the space ever since, and really saw that over the last sort of four years, the space was gathering momentum, especially commercially. And the applications that, that, that could be um, used for mental health was fascinating. And, and what for me has always been so curious about mental health is that despite massive medical advancements that we've seen improving and revolutionizing other areas of healthcare, care, um, the approach to mental health has, has been one that's suffered from stagnation and really a status quo that means we're using the same ineffective, tried and trusted formulas that... Um, That haven't worked for many years, and the only change we're really seeing is that the patient population is growing. Um, And I think part of that is because the treatments are mainly focused on masking the symptoms of the disease, rather than actually targeting the underlying causes or modifying the disease itself. And what was really fascinating for me, from the psychedelics angle, was actually here was the possibility for treatments that could tackle, you know, the underlying root causes. And so that could really open up a complete overhauling of our approach to mental health. And what's really exciting about additional work that we're seeing coming out of psychedelics is that with some of the next generation psychedelics, we can see treatments being applied to indications outside of mental health across a wide range of different areas from inflammation and pain management to Alzheimer's and stroke. Obsessive compulsive disorders, eating disorders, um, treatment for addiction, and really anything that at its heart is attached to a central nervous system um, illness can be treated with them. Um, so in terms of the psychedelic space, I think we're really at this crossroads now where we're seeing science, we're seeing the clinical and anecdotal results, um, and we're at a turning point now where the investment um, is gathering a pace and people are really talking about it and it's a mainstream point of conversation now and I think you can't really even pick up a newspaper without seeing something on the topic um, these days. So it's really been a sort of gradual transition um, into this space from having worked at, um, you know, in, in quite a cutthroat industry to wanting to move into something more mission-driven that I think is present and, and we're seeing in everyday life.
0: And if you know us at Scraps, we are always keen to go behind this iron curtain that many scientists and executives provide as a template answer. Sure, Claire was interested in the space, having been exposed to it and tracking the potential and emerging data, but there had to be a deeper personal connection that made her quit her legal career and pursue venture capital as an investor and raise her own fund. I'm sure her investors in the fund cared about her personal journey too, Let's go behind the veil, shall we? Here is Clara again.
2: I think part of it is, is growing up as a millennial, actually, where um, a lot of people in my network have gone through some sort of mental health struggle. And so I've therefore been exposed to sort of the route and the treatment um, that you would take in the UK or through the NHS. And, you know, I really believe that at its heart, you know, most... Um, depressive symptoms should be treated through some type of talking therapy and what I was say surprised was that young people were being just given this sort of patchwork of different tablets and pills that had you know quite horrendous side effects and part of the problem is, is one of economics which is that talking therapies are incredibly expensive and um, you don't know how long someone will need to, to, to go through that process in order to, to, to get better. Whereas it's so much easier to just give someone a tablet, you know, every day for the rest of their lives and hope that they get back to sort of just being a functioning um, adult. So I felt very much this desire to try to address that imbalance. Um, and so when I decided that I wanted to work in something that was more... Um, Mission-driven and actually would, you know, put the standard of patient care first and foremost and move it forwards. Um, to me, psychedelics and healthcare really had a mixture of
0: cutting-edge science. So, for all the listeners, if you are slightly older, being a millennial is not that bad. In fact, Arun, despite looking a few years older than he is, is technically a millennial. Mission matters to the millennials more than a paycheck. So we asked Clara how she went about raising the fund for Kuma Ventures with her partner, Sean McClintock. Both Clara and Sean had a mixture of UK and US educations, and it was natural to understand and explain the perspectives to their investors into the fund.
2: Interesting sort of um, from the perspective of how it might be applied to these very, very fast changing kind of economic times we find ourselves in, and also I would say that for us, both in terms of investor pool and investing, um, a lot has been happening sort of during the COVID pandemic, and I think COVID has, for many reasons, also shone a spotlight on mental health um, and and really kind of has put, has driven this agenda forwards, and so. For me, um, the tipping point was, you know, this is a problem that's hard to ignore. And what I liked about it was that it's it's not just sort of the mental health crisis, but it's also overlapping with this interest and resurgence of psychedelics. And the two have now completely sort of merged together. Um, And I think if you're looking at it as a problem that needs to be solved, the US is always a really good example because there's just so much data in the space. And... um, you know, in the US, you know, they pay out almost $6 billion in disability payments to PTSD sufferers, many of whom are veterans of either Iraq or Afghan wars. Um, the majority of those people don't work, they don't contribute to society, and they're severely traumatized. And their only form of treatment, really, you know, are disability payments and the medications they're on, which paper over the cracks. And I really see that as being some, the approach that we take in the UK as well. Um, And if you compare that problem and look at the way that the US government and military has been supporting MDMA and MDMA research, it's it's been really quite phenomenal. Um, I mean, there have been talks of MDMA foregoing phase three trials or full phase three trials and um, coming in with the US Department of Defense for a quicker rollout to PTSD sufferers. And they've treated over 100,000 veterans so far, but in the UK, there have been over 30,000 veterans treated with some form of psychedelic medication for PTSD. Um, And and in the UK, uh, there are MPs who are lobbying for change, for regulatory change. Um, And it's because people who have been through some form of psychedelic assisted therapy are living embodiments of the fact that this therapy does work and there are so many people who have had positive life-changing um, experiences that it's, it's, it's really impossible to ignore and you know I mean I've just t- touched on the PTSD landscape but then you've got the overlap of all the other mental health issues like depression and anxiety so for me the market is massive and the market is there and You know, I feel that I'm in a position where we have a network of interested investors who really want to make a difference. Um, And people are much more discerning about the way they invest these days. You know, they don't, it's not just about making a quick buck. People want to do well and do good with their capital. And there are so many excited companies that are now looking at this space um, that, know for me it's this is a really interesting mix of pairing a fantastic idea or piece of science or research with capital and knowing who wants to invest where and being able to really link those those together um which is really not so different i suppose to what i was sort of doing in private equity which was you know you had a great brand or a great team and it was about matching them with the right capital to to drive the business forwards. And so I really enjoy that aspect of it. But I think it's really hard to be a value investor in the space and really not sink your teeth into the science, because on the drug development side, that's so important. And it's really the thing that gives your fund the edge in this space is having a team of quality scientists who can rigorously DD the drug development angle and sort the wheat from the chaff in terms of the quality companies out there. Um, so, you know, I, I think these days, if you if you want to be an investor ahead of the game, you have to spend the time reading the scientific journals, the papers and speaking to the scientists. Um, because if you're an investor just flipping through a deck, you're never going to have um, the ability to sort of uh, cut through a lot of the BS, which is out there in the industry.
0: As explored in episodes five, six, and seven, we know that patients with mental health disorders are given pharmaceutical agents as first choice therapy before talk therapy is provided. Keith Abraham, one of our veteran contributors who suffered from PTSD, told us what the patient journey is like and how difficult it can be to approach and open up to talk therapy. Jesse Gould, on the other hand, mentioned that talk therapy is incredibly expensive in the U.S. So affordability is a major factor. Clara, as an investor in this space, wants to enable scientists and clinicians to develop the data in a manner such that talk therapy can be afforded as a first line of therapy. That is the North Star for mission-driven investors like Clara. Let's see what she has to say.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. It's it's a case of, I think, if you speak to most doctors, um, they would say that the what they'd like to prescribe is a talking therapy. However, budgets and um, protocols would suggest that they try something else first. Um, or that the talking therapy is capped to whatever number of hours can be afforded. And the problem with that is, you know, depending on um, the level of trauma or the patient's experience, you just you don't know how many sessions will be required for a patient to get a breakthrough. Um, but what we do know is that once you include a psychedelic as part of that experience, people tend to have that breakthrough moment a lot earlier. Um, and that's because of the way the psychedelic ex- experience works, how it resets sort of the pathways of the mind, and how it opens people up to therapy in a way that might take many hours of sessions to get that patient comfortable to relive traumatic or painful experiences and so we know that we've seen the evidence for it and and i think you know if you get to a point where we can get you know legislators comfortable with allowing certain psychedelics to be administered in this way under very controlled circumstances so only qualified clinicians therapists in a clinical setting with a number of safeguards in place and protocols I can't see why you couldn't have the talking therapy you know as the starting point for patients who are comfortable with it as opposed to you know really putting people on a lifelong program of, of SSRIs
1: so you can see how clara and previously jenny mitchell who ran the pivotal trials for mdma in ptsd are talking about they're talking about careful regulated clinical practice with the highest safeguards in place in contrast to the period in the 1960s where everyone and anyone could have access to a psychedelic and many psychologists in fact took it with their patients like timothy leary or providing a psychedelic experience to anyone who asks for, like Humphrey Osman providing it to Aldous Huxley. No more free candy. The approach that these individuals are advocating for is need-based availability with regulations. I'm sure many of you would agree to this approach. In fact, we at Scraps think that it is the best way. This can extend to other non-psychedelic substances too. If you need more information on that, listen to the two episodes in our collection. One of them is a Twitter Spaces recording with Julia Buxton on the 50th anniversary of war on drugs and the second with an undercover cop, Neil Woods. But let's come back to psychedelics. Now, let's get back to Clara. The traditional investors into venture capital have been private equity, hedge funds, or very high net worth investors. Typically, these organisations and individuals rely on fixed income returns for their customers, so tend to gravitate towards pharmaceutical and biotech stocks in life sciences. Some might even gravitate towards real estate. But psychedelic investments are different. Does it require a different mindset, even from an investment point of view? Here is Clara Bertenshaw again.
2: Well, I think you know it's, it's very much... Um looking at the landscape I just painted with, you know, the numbers involved. Um, So looking at the the market, you know, for PTSD sufferers in the U.S., you know, really the scale of the problem.
0: In fact, Claire is right. It's estimated that cost-effectiveness of MDMA psychotherapy will be $103,000 for every PTSD sufferer. So you can imagine the cost savings that psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy can provide. And also, I think...
2: Investors have seen the cannabis market flourish, and so, you know, a lot of our investors either come from a pool of people who have, who have done well out of investing in frontier of um, investments, so cryptocurrencies, cannabis, etc., or um, they're part of the baby boom generation, uh, who arguably, you know, never had it so good, and yet still face existential crises once they made all their money and you know obtained everything that they ever wanted um and then we've got people who are you know just very wealthy uh entrepreneurs who've had exits who now want to give back in some way and so those those people are already won over by the idea of psychedelics and so one doesn't have to put forward the same sort of arguments because they're already coming to this from an interested place and want to invest Um, when you're speaking to people who come from a place of not really knowing that much and having just heard about it and you're trying to explain um, why this would be a good place for them to put their money I think it's about really couching it in terms of this is going to be um potentially revolutionary this is the size of the market um and comparing it to cannabis where people did do very well but also highlighting some of the differences and also looking at where you know big corporates like johnson and johnson are moving um and so to sort of touch on those points i think The regulatory support we're seeing here is is quite unlike cannabis. So with cannabis, you saw the commercial industry really charging ahead. And then, you know, the regulators still trying desperately to keep up. You still have a number of problems with it. You can't bank normally. There are all these things that make the cannabis model quite inefficient, which really don't exist with psychedelics, um, because it's essentially a clinical and medical play with a pretty clear pathway through clinical trials. Clear value inflection points and you know pretty clear understandings of valuation and also what the costs of each stage are. Um, so different playbook entirely from cannabis. Um, you can then look at the sort of support that the FDA have granted. Um, so having granted breakthrough status to psilocybin, ketamine, and MDMA, which fast tracks clinical trials on the admin and paperwork side, and also recognition by the FDA that these drugs have massive therapeutic potential. Um, because not many drugs are granted breakthrough status and there haven't been many grants over the past decade. And then, you know, there has been this huge boost to the industry and, and since that's happened, um, we've seen this commercial race to keep up. And unlike cannabis, the big corporates being the first movers here, like Johnson & Johnson's Bravato, which is an esketamine-based nasal spray, um, they've done very well. And there's a good track record on what that drug can deliver from a revenue perspective once it's rolled out, because um, if you look at the market, you know, they made about $140 million from their first year off sale. And then they're hoping to get 300 to 350 this year. So there really is a market for this. It's really exciting. And we're not seeing the same sort of management teams and cowboys um, that we saw in, in cannabis, which did make those sorts of investments a bit risky. Um, We've seen a little bit of that here, and that's you know why the DD is so important. But generally, the standard of people and the standard of academia in the space is of an exceptionally high calibre. And so, you know, what we see here is the start of a big industry, um, which will definitely move the standard of patient care forwards if everything progresses on track. And the opportunity to be part of that narrative and um, and to invest in the brightest and best companies that will be rolling this out. Let's face it,
0: ketamine is not even a psychedelic in the true sense of the word. It's a disassociative anesthetic that, at higher doses than the ones that induce anesthesia, provide an out-of-body experience. In fact, in some centers, psychotherapy is not provided with ketamine therapy at all. And studies have shown that symptoms return within 12 months and require repeated therapy. The question that we have at Scraps, and also one that you as a listener must ask is, how is this long-term follow-up tracked? So one of the key items that an investor like Clara looks for is how does one de-risk investments in this space? How does one identify and invest in the right teams?
2: And normally investor concerns are, how do you de-risk this? How do you make sure that you're back in the right companies? And again, I think it really comes down to If you've got a team of scientists and you're able to break down, you know, the patents that have been applied for and get on a scientist-to-scientist call with the teams, you can really break down whether, you know, you're investing in a quality outfit or not. And, And what's so exciting then is that, you know, you've got these very, very clear value inflection points as the company moves from one phase to another or publishes results. And then, you know, I think, the other point that is really, really hard to ignore is that you're getting some of, you know, the um, the biggest names from Silicon Valley coming on board. Uh, you know, Peter Thiel is basically backed At-I, and these people understand, you know, and um, contribute to the rollout of new technologies. And so, I think if you look at the backing and you look at the the, the or hopefully be a matching of, of the regulatory development alongside the capital going into the industry and the breakthrough status that's been given. It couldn't be a more exciting time.
1: We closed the last episode by identifying three areas that is fundamentally different for psychedelics. First, new drug discovery for a market that does not need or want chronic administration. This includes ways of administration as well to ensure efficacy and reduced adverse effects. And of course, improve tolerability as a result. The second is the clinics who administer the therapy, how and which patient groups get access to the therapy. Because the manner in which these therapies will be administered will be different than popping a pill a day. And third is tracking the efficacy digital therapeutics, and other technological enhancements that aid psychotherapy. Here is Clara again, providing us with examples of each area through her investments.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We're investing across three different pillars. So the first is drug development, um, which we've spoken about, that is more akin to life sciences and biotech. Um, The second bucket is across clinicals um, and clinics. And then the third bucket is the the platform side, so digital therapeutics and the picks and tools of the industry. So you tend to see this. Um, and we first, you know, we expected the first wave of activity to be on the drug development side. Um, so companies looking at the creation of, of of these drugs and how they're going to get them into patients. Then you would see the next stage being clinics popping up. Um, as part of a distribution model you know once the drug is developed this is how we're going to um, distribute this across the market um, get patients into these controlled settings and make sure that they're going through the right sort of before and after care programs for things to be administered safely and then with the platforms and the picks and tools I mean, what's really interesting here is that there is going to be a huge amount of value coming out of data aggregators in the space. So, platforms working with clinicians or with patients, um, tracking their progress, how well their treatments are going, any side effects, how are they feeling, perhaps incorporating digital biomarkers as part of that, or part of you know the set and setting approach. So. You know the way in which you go into your treatment and and the way in which it's administered have a huge bearing on what that psychedelic experience might look and feel like. And so, some really really interesting um, people looking at the way that technology can interplay with this. So, um, for example, Mendel Kylen is looking um, through wave paths at how music can play a role um, in a psychedelic assisted therapy and is looking at clinics um, to work with on that and then we're seeing really interesting um, platforms that are looking to assess the pain points and what that industry might look like and create solutions so one particular platform that we're looking at is looking at connecting um, patients and clinicians. Almost like a quality sort of control management piece. So, a patient who wants to try, for example, a ketamine assisted therapy, would want to look at who could provide that sort of treatment within their area, and you know perhaps look at reviews of that of that therapist, get to know them before they embark on this journey with them, and then those therapists themselves you know, often have trouble actually getting. The prescriptions required, um, and so if there could be an interface that both connects the patient with the clinician, and then the clinician with the prescription required, uh, you know, is there a way of doing this in a transparent way, putting quality control and patient care at the forefront? And so, you know, I think you'll see that it's not just about the drug development and the clinic side, but the entire industry that grows up around this. Um, just. Standardize and improve patient care. And so for us, you know, our first port of call was looking at what are the really interesting drug developers in this space. And so we started off with investments into different drug developers. We went into multiple rounds of ATI-life sciences. Um, We invested in Beckley SciTech, which is the drug development arm of Beckley. Another company we're really excited about, Bright Minds Biosciences, which I won't go into much more detail because I know that you've spoken to them, but um, who have developed a pipeline of seven drugs and each drug is going to treat an indication that it could be worth, you know, it's a billion dollar market. And they're working with, you know, one of the only actually granted patents in this space. A smaller UK company looking at DMT called Small Pharma. And then we have another company also incorporated in the UK called Eleusis. And each of those companies is taking a slightly different approach, with Atai and Beckley looking at first, second and third generation psychedelic developments. And um, then we've got um, Bright Minds looking at next generation with you know, some of the most well-known veteran drug hunters developing programs across 5-HT2A, 5-HT2C, and a combination of both of those. Small Pharma reformulating DMT for mental health and Eleusis looking at mental health, anti-inflammation, and also they've taken a large share uh, in Calypso wellness clinics
0: in the US. And in terms of the way in which one can develop drugs and administer them in clinical practice, it is clear through multiple conversations that we've had in our research, and also something that Jenny Mitchell alluded to in episode seven. The time commitment to a psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy session, be it in clinical research or in clinical practice, is long compared to the traditional 45-minute psychotherapy counseling sessions. We asked Clara, how does this factor into the equation? And how comfortable is she as an investor? And finally, what is the opportunity for innovation?
2: So, okay, so I think, I think there are two points here. I mean, the first is we've really only engaged and spoken to... Um, Clinicians that are focused on psychedelic assisted therapies, and so they're not um, a general therapists who who then want to sort of turn their hand to a psychedelic assisted therapy. That's not to say that therapists won't start doing that when this becomes more mainstream. And actually, there are lots of platforms. Um, out there who are looking to address that. So through proper training models, training programs, um, and also, you know, uh, linking individual therapists to a model where, you know, they're supported by CRM, they're supported with like the latest know-how and supported from, you know, sort of a total integration um, perspective and technology. Um, But if you, you know, I think, part of what we're seeing a lot of the drug development companies doing is controlling that period of time. Um, so, you know, it doesn't make sense for someone to go on a six to eight hour psychedelic trip off of psilocybin because, you know, that, that, these sessions need to be focused and couldn't be more than one to two hours at a time. So half of the challenge is creating synthesized forms of these drugs that can be taken safely where you can control the amount of time that a patient is suspended in a psychedelic space And, and that's part of the challenge and that's what a lot of companies are you know taking for their solutions so yeah you wouldn't be looking at your regular one hour therapy session here you would be looking at sessions where you may have two or three sessions involving a psychedelic And for every session involving a psychedelic, you then have a couple of hours of spread out therapy to unpick what was learned during those psychedelic trips. And so you can see from that that you might have a combination of, you know, a two, two and a half hours psychedelic trip and then a follow up session of an hour, another follow up session of an hour and a further follow up session where the therapist unpicks everything that came from that psychedelic trip. And with each psychedelic trip, you know, it's an incredibly powerful experience. People who go through these say that it's often, you know, one of the most uh, overwhelming and beneficial sort of turning points in their life. You know, it's not something that can be delivered in rapid succession over like a couple of weeks. You need to have the correct sort of before and after care. People need to be sort of... Handheld as they try to make sense of this experience for themselves immediately afterwards they need to be integrated back into you know normal routine afterwards and the idea is that you know you would then follow up later go through the material that came from that and work through it with the patient. so not each session would be like so long as to be difficult to deliver it would be tailored and I think that's also where digital therapeutics and the platforms really have a role to play it's about tailoring a particular experience or the treatment according to that patient's needs and so there I think we'll see a lot of flex and slightly different approaches depending on the clinic or the clinician and their preference as well and how they deliver the therapy because each therapist has a slightly different approach has developed their own set of protocols or how they administer the treatment according to what they find has worked well with their patients or how they want to deliver The treatment. So I think, you know, it's not really a one-size-fits-all approach here. Um, It's incredibly varied. And, you know, the idea is that it will be
0: patient-focused and patient-led. So in terms of thinking through what Clara has just said, and also going back to Jenny Mitchell's interview, it's clear that psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is kind of keeping up with the 21st century model of personalized medicine, where you're tailoring the therapy to suit the needs of each individual.
2: Yeah, I mean, there are, what we're seeing in the main are either platforms that are part of the experience um, to improve that side of the assisted therapy. So you know, whether it's providing um, personalized music based on biomarkers and how that patient's feeling or um, connecting people with the right type of clinician, um, connecting clinicians with a model where they can get. Uh, the prescriptions required, and we're also seeing a lot of apps really that track the patient's experience, or people who are dabbling in this recreationally or as microdosing. So that people, you know, much in the same way that you've got, for example, apps for women's menstrual cycles like Flo, where people can keep a track of their own experiences and how they're feeling, and really monitor their progress. Um, the same sort of thing being applied to people with psychedelics. And then there's a whole host of, of platforms out there that are designed to make the clinician and therapist's life easier through standardized training, connecting individuals in the network, um, creating CRM systems to help um, with patient care, um, monitoring and 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 you know uh, continuous training so I, i think there are there are lots of different platforms being devised um in this space and i think the challenge is going to be often that you know the early mover does a lot of hard work and then a competitor comes in as the incumbent and has improved um through the first mover's experiences um but but generally i mean i i think we're seeing this across the board in terms of di- uh, in terms of digital therapeutics and you know the the way that healthcare is generally moving which is to be more holistic individualized and focused to that person's needs and i think a lot of that has also and the attitudes towards that have been accelerated through the experience of covid and people being treated you know in a different way um We've certainly seen in the UK, for example, that through the pandemic, you know, people have not had to make or not been able to make face-to-face appointments with their GPs. A lot is being done remotely. And and I think that has really sort of changed the way people are looking at at how treatment can be delivered. Um, And so what you will see is people taking healthcare sort of more into their own hands and people trying to devise solutions so that that can be done safely safely. and, and and healthcare services being sort of put under more scrutiny as to how they choose to spend their budgets and how they get patients to the right healthcare. And so we're definitely seeing the sand shifting in this generally. And what's interesting with psychedelics is that whilst you know this has not been something that has, has been part of mainstream healthcare, despite you know all of the taboo and the negative press from the 50s, 60s, and 70s people have still been doing this underground um, and people are still operating underground with therapies. Um, And what we're seeing now is is just that this now is is being looked at so much as part of mainstream and press and people publishing books like Michael Pollan. Um, We're now seeing the demand for these different types of treatment actually coming from the patient population. And so when the patient approaches their GP and demands to have a psychedelic assisted therapy because that's the type of therapy that they've read about and they want to take the gp actually in the uk already has some discretion to to prescribe this and they can do and they and they do when they do then you may go down the private route but it can be prescribed by the gp um and so i think As people become better educated about the results and how this works, I think it it will be it will be sort of a revolution that's led by the patient suffering and and education around this area. So, I think it's a really really interesting crossroads. And when you look at how this is paid for, you'll see that you know it may be the case that the insurers don't want to insure the psychedelic assisted therapy part, but actually they they start ensuring all the ancillary aspects of the treatment.
0: Okay. Twice during the conversation, Clara alluded to digital therapeutics and provided many examples. And one example that struck us was an example that Clara provided. It was of a company called WavePaths. And one must say it's a truly digital therapeutic. While most of the companies in digital therapeutics are apps or software platforms that collect data from the user, WavePaths is, and we repeat, a true digital therapeutic. Confused? Well, we're here to rectify that and provide the evidence.
1: We connected with Mendel Kalin, the CEO of Wave Paths, And before we go any further, we want to provide you a scientific nugget. After all, we are a science podcast, so it should come as no surprise to you. One of the PhD students at Imperial College published a paper with two of his mentors, Robin Carhart Harris and Professor David Nutt in the journal Psychopharmacology. This 2018 paper explored an interesting argument for set and setting. We know from traditional ceremonies and dating back to the books written by Mike Jay that singing, dancing, and drums in the Mesoamerican cultures were a big part of the experience. Then when mescaline came to be widely used, subjective experience could be modified depending on the type of music that was used. It's a different matter to the music that was created under the influence of psychedelics, but we will let you debate that in the bars, pubs, and if you avoid these drugs, over a cup of a stimulant, coffee. This paper published in 2018 explored the relationship and the characteristics of the music played during psychotherapy sessions and its correlation to subjective experiences. In fact, it is now common knowledge among psychedelic therapists that patients would ask for a specific album or a type of mood music in a session. So, in a subjective world, how does one systematize this? The author of this paper published in 2018 was Mendel Kalin himself when he was a PhD student at Imperial College, London. After graduation, Mendel took his hypothesis further and founded WavePaths. Let's hear from Mendel.
3: What we are building, we we are actively translating our scientific insights all the time into a technology, which is in essence, a musical instrument for the new generation of care providers that allows those care providers to have access to and work with a fully flexible, dynamic, musical environment to constantly provide the best, ideal, supportive climate for patients undergoing these experiences and find very simple, intuitive way to adapt music to the changing therapeutic needs of patients and thereby increase the patient experience and the therapy outcomes, as well as the therapist experience, not to... Not to be overlooked either, because being a psychiatric therapist is quite a challenge in itself with many questions and, 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 and unresolved questions in itself.
0: Instead of taking a clinical or neuroscience approach to psychedelics, we asked just how Mendel used a musical approach to research and now develop a product.
3: Sure, um, so my name is Mendel Kaden. Originally um, from Holland I'm born and raised in the north uh, east of the Netherlands went to university uh, in Groningen a city in the north I originally studied biology marine biology more specifically at some point I switched to neuroscience really because I got increasingly fascinated by consciousness and the many questions that are unaddressed or unanswered around the nature of consciousness in that Um, period I got introduced to psychedelics Um, this was in 2004 and I read everything I could I became increasingly interested in both the historical uh, richness around this topic the anthropological historical uh, data around the use of psychedelic plants and mushrooms and cacti and you name it all around the globe and their therapeutic potential. And then I learned about organizations like MAPS and Hefter and the Beckley Foundation and others. And it became very clear that I wanted to contribute to this uh, very young, emerging, but very promising field, in my opinion. Um, Back then, uh, university professors and colleagues were frowning whenever I even used the word psychedelic. Uh, Times have, that that has changed very, very radically, especially the last few years. But yeah, long story short, I I also experienced psychedelics myself. They um, really had a profound positive impact on how I uh, view myself, how I relate to myself, how I uh, resolved various uh, personal problems in my life, how I connect with others, how I connect with my vocation in life, my creativity in life, all these other things. Uh, I lived in the Amazon jungle when I was 21 for a number of months, experienced ayahuasca. Um, um, lived with a particular one shaman for two and a half months um, and eventually moved back to Holland, fin- finished my bachelor degree, finished my master's degree um, and at the same time always had a very strong connection also with music and, and sound art or sound more generally speaking. Grew up in a very musical family. Um, always at that moment it felt to me as if I needed to make a choice between pursuing a scientific career to study psychedelic therapy, or pursue a creative career and make music or or make sound art. Uh, Only when I was starting my PhD at Imperial College London, there was one moment where I realized that these two topics, psychedelics and music, are actually very closely related to each other. For strange reasons, it didn't dawn upon me earlier than that, but there was this one moment where I realized how closely connected they actually are. And my supervisors, my PhD supervisors, David Nutt and Card Harris, they're very supportive when I um, brought up various arguments of why I believed it was important to study the combination of music and psychedelics. And that became my main topic in my career. I studied and published various papers on brain mechanisms of music and psychedelics in combination, of the subjective experience of music under the influence of psychedelics, the experience of music in psychedelic therapy by by patients and uh, various um, theories and hypotheses that followed out of that on how music can actually be, how the therapeutic potential of music can and likely should be leveraged more thoughtfully, more empirically. Um, And that was for me also the reason to start Wave Paths. I did a PhD, stayed on as a postdoc even for a while at Imperial, but at some point I, I, I realized that in order to really acknowledge and listen into this growing fascination and interest of music and psychedelics and more broadly speaking, the therapeutic significance of altered states of consciousness and the various means in which we can access these and, and facilitate these, I really realized in order to pursue that deeper. I need and want to build my own organization that is concerned with nothing less and more than deepening our understanding of the role of music in psychedelic therapy, how music use can be leveraged to enhance therapy outcomes in psychedelic therapy and the therapeutic potential of music in itself and how we can leverage that in our wider society. And that has really been the core focus of wave since the beginning.
0: How does music affect the psychedelic experience? Are there any clues to how this happens? What did Mendel find out in his work at Imperial?
3: That's a large question. Um, but to, to kind of, to summarize, our, uh, absolutely. Very little, but this is where my research began, is, is looking at not only brain activity, but also brain connectivity and information exchange within the brain under the influence of a psychedelic and comparing that with psychedelic plus music or more broadly speaking four conditions no, no drug no music no drug music drug no music drug music so comparing those four conditions allowed us to really look into how information in the brain is processed differently and um, in when, when and then how in this case psychedelics and music interact and we see a number of things we see Huge distribution of resources to process, for example, various details in the music, like tone color. Um, that happens in areas of the brain that are usually associated with language processing, like if you're a frontal gyrus, um, Broca's area. Um, <clears throat> and the degree to which it happened correlated also with intensified um, feelings of wonder and awe, usually associated with peak experiences. Another study we looked at um, how music and psychedelics interact on the vividness of one's imagination and we saw a, an increase in information flowing from the parahippocampus, which is a region, region usually associated with personal memory formation towards the visual cortex and the degree to which the information flow was enhanced was predicted by the presence of music psychedelics together and that, and and also that that was modeled as a real and understood as a real synergy a real interaction effect so not one plus one is two but one plus one is let's say ten um, so that, that that study in particular um, suggested that there was a real interaction effect between psychedelics and music that interact to enhance information flowing from one region to another region more than, much more than we do without the presence of music.
0: Ancient practices grounded in music can get a new artificial intelligence-based product for psychotherapists. Is that the inspiration? So how does music influence therapy? Here is Mendel again.
3: Music plays an integral role in ceremonies all around the world When you look at traditional usage. Of course, there's examples where Psychedelic medicines are not used, but music is in that those cases a very central component to the um, Religious medicinal ceremony, but wherever there is Psychedelic plants involved music is also deeply involved if you speak with the shamans They often explain that the music is as important as the plant medicine itself and as sacred as the plant medicine itself Um, And that they really work in synergy with each other now We move forward in time to the Western world in the 50s, where many scientists and therapists were trying to get their heads around this very new, novel class of compounds and their relevance for science and therapy. They also realized that people can have a wide range of very different experiences with exactly the same drug. And they then realized that the set and setting play a very important role in determining what kind of experiences people have. And they also already ent- identified that the kinds of experiences that people have determine to a very large degree the therapeutic outcome of the experience, or one might say the therapeutic success of the experience. There are certain qualities in the experience that are most likely to facilitate sustained improvements in mental health and well being afterwards. And those qualities of experiences have to do with um, autobiographical experiences. Insight in causes of various psychological problems within oneself. Um, reconnection with various parts of one's autobiography or events from the past and integrating them more constructively inside of oneself. Um, or spiritual type experiences, mystical type experiences, or some humanistic psychologists might, might say peak experiences, experience of bliss and wonder. Those experiences that, um, if you look at all of them, share have significant personal meaning, correlated positive therapy outcomes. Now, when we again move forward in time from 50s, 60s, 70s into the psychedelic renaissance that is happening right now, um, and and this is also where my research um, began, we are starting to validate some of these hypotheses more empirically and then to add further insights in in how these variables impact the experience, how we can work with with these therapeutically. So when it comes to setting, one of the elements that I focus on and we focus on primarily is music. Why? Because if you look at how psychotherapy is currently performed, developed and implemented, that includes patients being carefully prepared for the session, it happens in a therapeutic relationship, but then during the acute experience, music is almost the only stimulus patients are exposed to.
0: So how does music influence therapy? We actually know a few underground therapists who use music for meditation and have said to us that some of their clients have cried with their music as a backdrop for the meditative experience.
3: Um, so people undergoing psychedelic therapy are having this very powerful experience that is catalyzed in an interaction between psychedelic medicine and the music um, to a very large degree. It's not the only way we can work with these psychedelic medicines, but this is the way psychedelic therapy is currently designed, developed, and implemented. So um, doubling down on understanding the role of music in psychedelic therapy, and and also to your point, to kind of link this maybe with some examples of of patient experiences. At my work at Imperial, um, I worked on what was um, a clinical trial studying Psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, in a therapeutic format for patients that suffered from severe depression. And what was very clear is that with one and the same song, one individual can have one of those experiences that I just described, profoundly, personally meaningful experiences that are truly life-changing in the real meaning of that word. While another individual with exactly that same song entered the state of Confusion, anxiety, paranoia, dissociation—you name it. Experiences that, if, if they if these experiences would be more chronic and sustained, can be um, not only challenging but uh, traumatic to such a degree that the um, the um, the um, the, um, the symptoms are worsened, and the the patient will leave this experience worse than how he or she entered the experience. So music can both make or break the experience one might say music can be both a source for healing as it really can be a source for destruction i really became confident that music has that power now when we take that information um and 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 we look at what's happening right now in the world where so many clinical trials are being um, developed, and so many clinics are are are, are getting formed to offer psychologic therapy to patients, which is fantastic because mental health care is in this has, has found itself in this dead end road right over the last decades, and there's this huge need for innovation. Psychologic therapy is clearly offering a potential innovation when it comes to mental health care, and a very profound potential. But when we look at what's happening, um, with all of these clinical trials and all of these clinics. One of the main challenges that those care providers are facing is that in essence they are dealing with a care model that is radically different than any care model that people are trained to perform. Uh, Psychotherapy is not pharmacotherapy, patients are not given a drug and expected to uh, be better as a result. It's also not psychotherapy, how we're used to think about psychotherapy, although it has more, I would argue, more um, commonalities with psychotherapy. But in reality, it's really a mixture of many things. It has acute pharmacological effects on the brain. It has, for example, effects on um, on neuroplasticity. It has definitely effects on moods that can be explained to a large degree with some of these pharmacological effects. But there's also a very large component to the experience that um, I would even dare to say quite boldly can only be explained if we look at this from a different framework that is more concerned with psychotherapy or maybe even other other traditions that um, uh, try to understand the functioning of the mind. Um, So that's a challenge for all of these therapists. What are the right qualifications for a therapist to to do this work safely, ethically, efficiently, um, um, uh, responsibly? And and then when we look at the components of, 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 of the therapy, music seems to be one of those components that, again, can really make or break the experience. And then if you look into the the way music ideally is being offered, meaning in a highly person-centered way, adapted to the needs of the individual, adapted to the changing needs of the same individual over the hours of the experience, that is also quite complex. Right? So this new generation of care providers is basically... Um, expected to both learn how to work with a new class of medicines and and and, and, and really um, forced almost to change their usual paradigm in how they think about mental health and treating patients. And at the same time there's also this component of music which is a whole complexity in itself. So this was also really the foundation for wave pods, recognizing that and also realizing that there are in fact advances both in the science of psychedelic therapy, the science of human development, but also technological advances in immersive arts, uh, computational creativity, biometrics, that can all be unified to develop this highly intuitive, flexible instrument for care providers and care seekers to really find ways to increase the likelihood of these therapeutic experiences to occur and decrease the likelihood of these these, these counter therapeutic experiences to occur.
1: So it's not just a matter of playing a musical album that the patient knows of or what the therapist thinks might help the patient. But understanding and studying music as an experience can help psychotherapy is Mendel's point.
3: Right, it's very different. Um, And I think the way to maybe start unpacking this is by emphasizing that one of the things we do is understanding how music can be personalized to the individual. So what is the musical language right, one might say that this individual speaks? What are the instruments, uh, compositional qualities, acoustic qualities that this individual is connected to already? And then how can we utilize that language, that connection to speak to the experience of the individual with music that is that is implementing or integrating these these qualities? So that's one, really ensuring that we build an appropriate musical climate that is truly empathically resonating with the listener, with the patient that is undergoing the experience. <clears throat> but then it comes when it comes to the changing dynamics of the experience within the acute experience, um, there can be various processes, various topics, various themes, various feeling states, various thought processes, various physical experiences that patients undergo that that, um, need attention, that need need a particular quality of attention when working in a psychotherapy framework. And that quality of attention is usually described as a degree of openness and curiosity towards the unfolding experience as it is, without wanting the experience to be different. when when one approaches the unfolding inner experience with that openness and curiosity and attention further layers of that experience can reveal itself further levels of understanding of oneself can reveal itself underneath the anxiety there's sudden anger underneath the anger there is certain sadness underneath those tears that are currently being released there is a memory that was forgotten, or a thought that suddenly brings a lot of clarity around a relationship that has been unresolved for way too long, and all the feelings that are accompanying that experience. Uh, so, the, 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 what, there's many ways to phrase these philosophies that are implemented in psychedelic therapy. But at the very, at the very end, uh, at, one might argue that at the, at, at, in the very essence, what facilitators, care, care providers are aiming for. Is for the individual to become more whole, become more total, more integrative for whatever has happened in the past and less defensive, less dissociated from various parts of oneself. And those defenses, those dissociations are there always for good reasons, right? Because they were traumatic or overwhelming or too painful. But in a safe climate, like in psychotherapy, it's a it's an opportunity. To become more, more whole, more integrated. So to bring all of this back to this question of how music ideally is used, and what we mean with person-centered use of music is really utilizing music to, um, to shift the focus of the patient there where the focus needs to be, in order for those therapeutic experiences to be deepened and to be resolved. And in, in our technology, we for that reason literally offer any kind of subjective experience one might imagine that can be facilitated with music and then the emotional intensity of that experience all at wish all um, on control um, to find those sweet spots so to, so to say for patients to work through those experiences um, and that is uh, partially done manually, but we're also working on various biometric integrations to support that process further. Um, but the, that, that, that will be kind of a high-level summary of how the platform is currently developed. Some therapists refer to it as a thermostat, but a musical, a music stat, one might say, or an auditory stat or whatever. Um, but it's the same ease, the same intuition of switching the temperature in a room or the light in a room quickly, easily, intuitively, without the need to enter all sorts of complicated thinking and planning, that's the same ease that we offer in terms of changing the music to support these changing therapeutic needs
1: of the patient. So in contrast to a molecule that we would not recommend ingesting from the vial to the mouth, we would definitely recommend the following. If you go to the WavePaths website and create a login, the first thing that strikes is the tagline on the homepage experience as medicine. But when you create the login, you will see a colored display screen which enables you to click through on all sides of the circle and change the tonality and the sound that suits your mood for the day. This is a publicly available information free to use tool on the WavePaths website. But we are sure that WavePaths has much more trade secrets and patterns in this space. Let's hear from Mendel.
3: So we, we do that both algorithmically and manually. And it's really up to the therapist and the patients how much manual changes are wanted. But those changes can be anything that they deem is important in this moment: changing an instrument, changing a particular layer of the music, uh, changing the emotional intensity, um, other qualities in the music. Um, like tone color or pitch or scale, um, adding various sounds to the music. Um, but algorithmically, um, we're trying to build these 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 profiles basically of, of patients and see how a, a, a person usually responds to music, and and how that these usual responses would likely translate into an acute psychedelic state. So that's one way how we are automating the process as much as possible and really making it as, as easy as possible for, for therapists um, to take away the thinking and the planning and, and concerns and complexity that is, that is there. Yeah, and it's really both. It's really, it's really both. Often therapists just put in some variables uh, at the beginning and, and really enjoy the fact that they can trust the system to do its thing and the smoothness, uh, the fact that, that you don't have these transitions from song to song, but it's all a continuous fluid experience. Um, but then any change that you might imagine can be um, done, can be, um, can, be, can be implemented as well on top of that. Yeah. We are, first of all, not working with fixed songs or compositions. Um, it's, like I said before, flexible and adaptive. And the reason it's it's flexible and adaptive is because we work with the building blocks of music, the different instruments, the different stamps or samples, if you might say, and these are either pre-recorded or generated in the moment. And, 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 and therefore any, anything can be blended and mixed and remixed all the time in real time to create the desired sonic constellation in this moment. for
0: the the listener. Sonic Constellation? If you thought that we, as a science podcast, did not talk or like spirituality, we finally spoke of how a subjective musical identity can guide a psychotherapy session and how technological improvements and innovations can aid in providing a tool to the psychotherapist. In fact, WavePaths has done exactly that. The beauty of this digital therapeutic is that it's already generating revenue. And at the time we spoke to Mendel, it was in use in 11 different countries, including the US, Canada, parts of Europe and Australia. And another aspect that we came to know of was the fact that different psychedelic substances can alter the oral sensitivity. We asked Mendel if this is true and if there's an opportunity to make or set a framework for a particular drug by avoiding a few musical attributes and highlighting others. Here's Mendel's response.
3: Well, it's not, it's not known in the public, and this is another example of why I felt there needs to be an organization like WavePaths to really double down on all of these outstanding questions that are so important. And one of them is understanding how sound and music perception is different from different molecule to different molecule, and comparing ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin, all the tryptamines very actively. And that is exactly what we're doing. And I can't disclose too many details on that as we speak, but this is exactly one of the things that we are studying and in integrating. Adaptation to the medicine in question, adaptation to the individual traits, and adaptation to the process of this person in a moment. i really bringing it all together in one, one
1: framework. All right, so we spoke to an investor who invests in highly promising companies in the area. We spoke to a digital therapeutics entrepreneur who was convinced much like many in the area, that music is an experience and an integral part of the psychedelic experience. Yet, the experience is subjective. Beyond the subject itself, no one else can actually see or understand what's happening. The only way to gather information is if the person undergoing the psychedelic therapy talks about their experience, which we know happens in the psychotherapy sessions. Are you ready for the big question? It is something that ties our primary area of technology in healthcare research to the area of psychedelic medicine. What if one can truly understand what is happening to the areas of the brain when someone is dosed with a psychedelic molecule? What if there was a way to understand neural signatures of a psychedelic experience or inform the physicians which part of the brain surface is active and which isn't? Why is this important? Because you can understand the signature of a patient in therapy at baseline, through therapy and during follow-up. Imagine the richness in the data that comes from such a technology, if it's available. And what if one had such a system? One that informs and provides a better understanding of the human brain under the influence of a psychedelic. Well, we explored that too. Around the time that we spoke to Doug Drysdale, CEO of Saibin, it was announced that Cybin is exploring a collaboration with Kernel.
0: Kernel is a technology company started by Brian Johnson. Brian Johnson, a former founding CEO of Braintree, a company that processed online payments and counts Venmo as one of its acquisitions, and was itself acquired by PayPal for $800 million. So Brian Johnson invests $50 million of his own money into building Kernel. Kernel, despite its different focus in the early days, now focuses on building hardware to understand hemodynamic and electrical signals from the surface of the brain and the cortex. There are some fundamental technical challenges that they had to overcome, which they seem to have worked through. Currently, a Kernel wearable helmet that looks like something from Star Trek uses a non-damaging and safe laser imaging technology that utilizes magnetoencephalogram, a concept not that different from the emerging magnetocardiography to measure electrical activity on the surface of the brain. The helmet has various hexagonal modules spliced together to form a sensor surface that can compartmentalize and provide high fidelity data during natural human experiences. So we asked Doug Drysdale CEO of Cybin, how they intend to use Colonel's expertise Here's Doug In fact his answer made total sense and so does their collaboration with Colonel
4: So it's a good questions so on the on the preclinical side you're right it's been notoriously difficult to translate uh, CNS or psychiatry animal models into man uh, and uh, been many failures uh, over the over the years and part of what attracted us to this space, though, is that we we know a lot about these molecules already. They've been in the in the public domain uh, for you know since the fifties. Uh, for, for psilocybin, for example, LSD, and so the parent molecules, the scaffolds that we're using, uh, we already know quite a lot about how they work in man. I mean, it's it's unusual, isn't it, to have uh, so much in man data available uh, in, in these kind of conditions. So uh, we have the benefit of being able to take those well-known molecules as parent scaffolds and then, as I say, using the, the chemistry and delivery, uh, and adjust how, how we deliver them and how they work in, in, in the body. And we have already seen in some of our preclinical work that there's, there seems to be no difference between the activity of our altered molecules and the original parent molecules. Uh, so that gives us good confidence as we go uh, into the clinic. On the clinical side of things you're right, uh, it, the data, data in this space uh, when you're looking at uh, say, depression for example is largely subjective and, uh, and part of that is a is lack of uh, scalable technology. So um, there, there's, there's good neuroimaging technology that exists today, fMRI or MEG uh, for example but these are multi-million dollar pieces of equipment that are room sized. And uh, they take up, uh, you know, the, the massive amount of space, um, and they re- they need a PhD technician to run them. So that makes them difficult to access for patients, and uh, let alone the fact that the patient's lying in a tube with 120 decibels playing around their head. It makes it hard to get into those uh, those technologies frequently. And that's why our partnership with Kernel uh, and the West Coast is is really interesting uh, because they've over the last five years managed to take well-known neuroimaging, uh, optical imaging technology and miniaturize it. They've developed high, high powered lasers and they've developed new chips that can handle all the data that come out of a device that is portable. And that portability transforms the way that we can, we can do neuroimaging. So we're hopeful that we can, uh, in the second half of this year, start to study uh, using the kernel flow device, this, this a wearable neuroimaging helmet that uses functional near-infrared spectroscopy, by the way, lots of long words. Um, but we can use that to on patients in a more longitudinal basis. So we can study uh, the patient's neural activity before, during, and after treatment. Uh, it'd be interesting, I think, to see if the neuroplasticity that we've seen under fMRI uh, has some durability. Does it continue? Uh, or how, how temporary is it? How, how long does it last? And uh, I think also when you get down into lower doses of these molecules, sub-perceptual doses where do we still see neural activity or, or change in activity at those levels? And there you might be able to use the quantitative data now. Uh, to develop treatments for potentially uh, cognitive impairment or attention deficit, where, where traditionally those studies have been very, very difficult because the effect sizes are quite, quite small and hard to measure on a qualitative level. So uh, the technology is going to help, um, we think, to, to learn a lot more. That said, (laughs) all of that said, uh, our our lead clinical study, which is a phase two program for major depressive disorder that we're about to enter into, uh, is using typical qualitative Madras scale, montgomery asberg scale. But those those scales have been well accepted and, and well used over time.
0: It's early days, but definitely it's one example of how psychedelic drug discovery companies are trying to leverage technology for use. Finally, we have to finish with our investor mindset. At the end of it, it's going to be a business that will have a patient at its core, a business that will seek to improve patients' lives. And it is not going to be easy. Here's Clara Burton-Shaw with a summation of her challenges for the field.
2: Sure. I mean, look, for, for psychedelic assistive therapy to succeed and to get rolled out, we will require a revamped clinical rollout from two angles, right? There was a lot of learning that came out of cannabis both in terms of educating doctors on how it worked how they should be giving the prescriptions in the first place um the clinic side of it is more nuanced you know you've got the before and after care aspect um and the digital therapeutics have touched on and a lot more personalization of healthcare. you know ai driven biomarkers etc um and so you know whilst that one size fits all treatment model hasn't worked in the past and we're now seeing psychedelics and tech add-ons you know that help us treat mental health in a more bespoke way than ever before um this this is an ecosystem that is growing um for both the clinicians and the patients now how how do we fund this and how does it work with the payer well if you're looking at 60% of patients looking for alternative treatments for major depression and other related illnesses just can't get the treatment, not because the doctors or the patients are unwilling, um, but because they can't find the prescribers. Um, that's, that's the side of it that's being addressed, um, through various platforms. And it's something that, you know, will be handled by out-of-pocket and private insurance, um, you have to be pragmatic about this because not everything is going to be insured from the get-go. But some companies will insure, you know, that non-psychedelic element. So the aftercare and the pre-care and in the U S you know, it will be the, the private insurer that, that picks up the tab for that. And in the UK, a mixture of private insurance and, you know, hopefully the NHS once the, the regulatory and legislative landscape has changed. And, um, and everything becomes standardised. Um, but what I know and feel will be the case moving forwards with this is that for everyone to get comfortable, particularly the insurer and the NHS, um, we will be looking at types of drugs that have gone through quite a stringent lead optimization programme to de-risk them, get them through the clinical trial And I think at that point then, you're looking at this more from sort of a biotech drug discovery angle and less of the sort of taboo psychedelic angle, um, which will get national health systems and insurers generally a lot more comfortable with what's being rolled out. And and I think it will be a combination, you know, for the UK of, of public and private purse And in the U.S., actually, if you're looking at the support that's being given by the FDA and, you know, the U.S. Department of Defense um, and DARPA, etc., there is a case for some, not all, but some of this to be picked up by um, the the public sector. And I think, again, it will come down to the structure of, of how these payment plans work and the types of indications they treat. So... If you're looking at the PTSD and the veterans angle you know that would be picked up by the healthcare service because it's related to the Department of Defense if you're looking at pain management outside of the psychedelic therapy but you know just uh, treatments for pain relief etc that can be rolled out as you know any other pain relief medication would be given um, And so I think it will be about, you know, what's the indication, what is the profile of the patient taking it, and does it fall within a remit that the insurers are comfortable to insure? What that will look like in terms of, you know, um, a wider picture, I don't know. But I think, like all things, it will be tailored and nuanced. And some areas that insurers will be more comfortable insuring
1: than others. I hope you get the scale of this exciting area of science. This is precisely why we wanted to bring the story to you in the way that we did through this podcast. We could have done what everyone else does, which is bring a few people in and do a series of interviews. But that is only helpful if you really understand the area. But for wider acceptance into society, we need an informed narrative and a discussion. One that is grounded in information, warts and all. Have we solved every problem? No, not at all. But we've given you enough information to push for truth and look beyond the fluff whenever there is a new news article. We hope that as you've listened through the 10 episodes in our series, we have conveyed the stories of these amazing class of molecules that have given us hope. Now it is time for you to dig a bit deeper. That was Psychedelics a Scraps original podcast exploring the therapeutic use of psychedelics. An enthralling story of an improbable drug class banished into exile, yet comes back soaring like a phoenix from the ashes to save mankind's affliction with mental health disorders. And we are just getting started. There is so much more to do. You've been listening to Psychederics. Psychederics is a Scraps original podcast produced and narrated by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Scraps is a volunteer-run organization created by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt to disseminate factful stories of science, scientists, and innovators as a service to the world. Select research for this podcast series was performed by Sharina Rice. The producers thanked Clara Burtonshaw for her invaluable input. Multimedia services was provided by Dr. Romeo Ratch. The scripts were written and edited by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Financial support to cover the production costs was from CyberNink and a kind donor BB. Recordings were done at Caprino Studios in the UK and Slightly Red Studio in San Francisco. Swaminathan Dinyana Samandam performed the mixing and mastering. All recordings, including interviews, are properties of the producers and should not be reproduced without permission. The show notes, transcripts and useful links pertaining to the episode are located at the podcast website psychedelics.com